You are listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi-monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael G. Moore. Please visit our website at inacitylikeyours.com. That's I-N-A-C-I-T-Y-L-I-K-E-Y-O-U-R-S dot C-O-M. For links to our social media, all popular podcast platforms, and links of interest pertaining to all episodes. On this episode, John begins his story with the tale of his fiancée being stalked and ultimately sexually abused by a group of strangers. He later turned this story into two books, which would become the basis for a television program. Working on the TV program introduced him to the world of movie making, which he enjoys to this day. We then discuss his career as a doctor, first in anesthesiology and later in pain management. Here is John's story. My name is Dr. John Hall. I live in Bulverde, Texas. I'm a physician uh, with an office in San Antonio. I do uh, pain management and anesthesia. And the interesting story with my life is um, approximately 10 years ago, um, I was engaged to a very beautiful girl who came to me with an interesting problem uh, that she trusted me with. She uh, came to me and noticed that she was being followed everywhere she goes by by various cars, people following her to and from work and noticed that her home was being broken into and, and things were being messed with. She was hesitant to talk to anybody else about it. She had kind of mentioned it to the police. Since nothing was being stolen, they really didn't take it too seriously, but she was pretty certain that she was being followed. So taking her seriously, I enlisted the help of some private investigators who actually started kind of counter-surveilling her and discovered that she indeed was being stalked by a former FBI agent who was working as a private investigator in San Antonio, Texas being paid by a very wealthy individual who had taken a liking to her, was attracted to her. And basically, as as it would pan out, I, I kind of started following her too, or following the people that were following her. And then some really weird things started to happen with um, electronic devices being found in the house, satellite trackers being found on her car, everywhere she went. And at this point, everywhere I went, uh, noticed that the same vehicles and same people were following us. And of course, neither one of us were in any legal trouble. She was showing apartments for a living. I was, you know, working as an anesthesiologist. Uh, then she came to me with an interesting story that she began to hear voices in her head, not, not voices of angels or anything like that, but a buzzing sound and a high pitch sounds, electronic sounds that slowly became basically the voices of the people watching her and attacking her. And at this point, they were breaking in, they were putting Rohypnol, the date rape drug, uh, in her food and in her water in her house, and basically had begun sex trafficking her, sex trafficking her. Um, We're coming over there after she was doped up on Rohypnol. I found her that way several times, had to take her to the emergency room. Sure, she tested positive for uh, Rohypnol and was being used as a sex slave essentially um, by this group of people who were stalking her. So we went to the police uh, at the time 
and who I knew, I did some of their medicine and pain management. And I had put um, voice-activated recorders in her condo, had caught the people on recording actually breaking in, uh, her acting out of her mind once that she had been adulterated with Rohypnol. And uh, when the police heard the recordings and they talked to me, they exact words, and I wrote this in a book about this whole scenario, was that sometimes a story becomes so crazy that it's got to be true. And that's about where we were in this story. But unfortunately, at the time, the stalking laws in Texas were such that you had to completely prove injury you know, and malice to be able to get a, a restraining order. By this time, we had ran the plate numbers. We knew exactly who the private investigative service was that was stalking her and, and raping her. And the police told us, well, this guy's former FBI. I mean, he that's what he does. He works for a lot of lawyers in San Antonio. And until you can prove injury and we can have solid proof that he's actually breaking in and adulterating your food and water, that there's not much we can do. So um, basically to save her, you know, we, we wound up breaking up over this and the stress and she agreed to move out of the condo that they had her targeted in wound up moving in with her parents so there would be people around her and since I couldn't figure out a way to get any legal help because at the time the laws were ambiguous on being able to cover this I decided to write a book about it and that book came out about a decade ago it was called um, Satellite Terrorism in America A New Breed um, basically referring to a new breed of crime using satellite-based surveillance and tracking technology. And started doing some radio shows um, for the book. And unbeknownst to me, this apparently was a common crime and was going on with a lot of other people. I did a couple of syndicated radio shows. The first time I spoke about this and the book uh, actually went on the market, was inundated with probably six or 7,000 emails from people across the country and the globe uh, voicing similar complaints uh, that they had been victimized in this way. And it even has a name online if you've heard of targeted individuals or electronic stalking or gang stalking is another term for it, is one of the most reported crimes online that I guess our legal system hasn't caught up with the technology to do anything about. So there are, are a lot of people suffering from this type of crime. So I wound up writing a second book, um, called in some favors from some friends who work for the FBI and work for the CIA to learn about the technology that's being used. A lot of it is electromagnetically based. For your listeners, it's similar to the technology that um, the media has released that has been used on the Cuban embassy diplomats and the Chinese embassy diplomats. Usually starts with hearing ringing in the ears, uh, headaches, nausea, illness, and then can degrade to them actually beaming signals at you to what sounds to be like voices in your head. It's actually a transmission of sounds around you that rely on vibrations in the air and ceiling fans or anything that will vibrate air to for you to be able to hear. The interesting thing is they're able to target it in such a way that only the person being targeted hears it. Uh, and that's similar to a device called Audio Spotlight. So after I got information on how it's actually being done uh, through microwave hearing and audit microwave auditory effect, then I wrote a second book 
uh, called guinea pigs technologies of control that uh, actually highlighted the type of technology being used and highlighted the number of people that are actually voicing these complaints and of course now 10 years later we've got cuban diplomats uh, that are voicing these same complaints uh, as chinese diplomats voicing these complaints and several uh, leaders from Central American com uh, countries voicing complaints that they were being targeted by this type of technology by our government. So Discovery Channel actually got a hold of me after the second book came out and they wanted to do a special on this group of people uh, referred to as targeted individuals uh, and it was um, initially called Targeted. Uh, and it was uh, me and a syndicated radio host that does a conspiracy theory type of radio show uh, and a paranormal investigator that they brought us together to meet some of these targeted individuals in California and Seattle, you know, search their homes, you know, look at them medically, check them out and see what was going on. And um, the show was filmed by a uh, company from the UK called Firecracker Films. The title wound up being uh, United States of Paranoia, catchy name, um, but in the end showing that the paranoia was justified uh, in some of these people, uh, that they indeed were being stalked and were being targeted by uh, electronic technology. As soon as the show was filmed, the series was filmed, the government put a stop to it being released in the United States. Uh, the Discovery Channel did release it uh, in Europe. Um, and you can find uh, some of these episodes on YouTube uh, from Finland and other countries under the title United States of Paranoia. But the one good thing, I guess you could say, that did come out of the tragedy that kind of befell my fiance and myself was that in doing the filming uh, for the Discovery Channel, I was able to meet other filmmakers and producers and um, grip people and crew people. Uh, which kind of um, led me uh, into the film business myself. I, I'm still practicing medicine uh, in San Antonio, Texas, and I'm, I'm still an activist uh, against this particular type of electromagnetic surveillance technology. And I've done a number of interviews, including overseas interviews in Berlin and several other countries uh, that have had concerns about this technology long before the Cuban embassy was attacked by it. Um, but was able to meet other people in the film business, started doing some music videos in San Antonio for my own country and western band and, and other people, and then met Brian Elder uh, with Elder Films uh, on a music video shoot. And we decided to start shooting a western. And um, most westerns that you see are uh, basically chronicles about the 1880s, 1890s, the um, clothing that you wear, the guns are all pretty similar to uh, modern day guns now, but nobody's ever done anything about Texas in the 1850s. There was a period in Texas um, <clears throat> after the Alamo fell and San Jacinto was, was won and Texas gained their uh, independence from Mexico. Not long after that, uh, Texas joined the United States. And for a brief period there was part of the United States before becoming part of the Confederacy during the Civil War. Well, that period from 1850 to 1860 was a very tumultuous time uh, in Texas. And we happened to be filming a country western music video 
at a place called 1850 Settlement that uh, had a, a lot of original structures from 1850. Um, we, we fell in love with it and got to talking. I said, you know what, we should do a TV series about the Compromise of 1850, which was a federal government plan with Texas that actually broke away the territory of New Mexico and brought Texas down to the borders that you now know um, in the modern era. And at the time, people were mad about that. Most people in Texas didn't want to join the United States. They wanted to remain a republic after they broke from Mexico. They were unhappy with Sam Houston uh, that he, for one, took Texas into the Union and were even more unhappy when he gave away uh, part of Colorado and all of New Mexico, which had been part of the Republic of Texas at one time. So we um, got with a writer and uh, Brian and myself and Jeremiah Olsman basically started writing a script about two fictional outlaws in the historically correct backdrop of Texas between 1850 and 1860. Um, the TV series is called Death and Compromise. Um, it's been shot really well with a lot of attention to historical accuracy uh, in it. And basically, uh, myself and Brian Elder play two outlaws. I'm, I'm a gunfighter. He's a con man. And circumstances bring us together to become partners. The TV series is serious on a historical standpoint. There is some comedy. You know, there is a lot of drama. Um, there is some, of course, killing. But not to the point where it can't be basically a, a family film uh, or a family series. And we've um, finally finished shooting that and uh, have it finishing up in post-production. Um, we've been working with a network in San Antonio called Grand Network, which is part of the Roku network. Uh, and of course, looking at Amazon Prime and Amazon and hopefully Netflix. Um, as uh, some of the people were hoping to pick up the series, we've got uh, the first season shot and uh, are getting ready to do a, um, a show at uh, a theater um, north of San Antonio, between San Antonio and Austin, to actually premiere the first season to a limited number of people just to kind of see the reactions on people. And Westerns always seem to do well <clears throat> in a political climate where it seems like everything's political right now. We're hoping that maybe people will just want to watch something that's straight entertainment, harken them back to maybe a simpler time. That's kind of how I got into the film business and then wound up on Death and Compromise shooting this film. It was kind of, I guess, a silver lining in a, in a cloud of tragedy initially based on what happened to myself and my, my fiance. But uh, And Brian and I have gone on to film some other things. Uh, a faith-based film called Lasting Moments and some more music videos uh, for Stick Horse Rodeo, a uh, up-and-coming country and western band uh, out of San Antonio and Bulverde. And I guess in a short, that's kind of my story. I was interested in, you were talking about you hired a writer. Were you, you came up with the concept of the, the western, is that correct? Yeah, Brian and I did, and then we had a friend named Jeremiah Olsman, who is a really good screenwriter, uh, was in Texas at the time. He's now in, in L.A. And uh, Brian, Jeremiah and Brian, neither one are from Texas. I, I was born and raised here, so uh, we all kind of took a hand in the writing. Jeremiah had the, the lion's share of it, but uh, a lot of my input was the historical accuracy. One thing Texas is really good about is when you go to public school in Texas, 
you get Texas history from the sixth grade to the 12th grade every year. It's whether you want to learn it or not, it's being drilled into you. So um, that's one thing that I was real cautious with the script to make sure the historical accuracy was there because since Jeremiah Olsman and Brian, neither one were from Texas, I knew they wouldn't be too certain of the, of the history. So um, he was kind of hired on board for a lot of the dramatics part of the script. And then uh, Brian and I made sure that the historical accuracy was there as well. Would you care to go back some and talk about being a doctor? Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, had wanted to be a physician since I was in middle school, actually, uh, you know, you kind of start kind of planning for your life and you, you know, you do want to be a lot of things when you're a kid. And then I had a science teacher uh, in middle school in the eighth grade. Uh, her name was Cynthia Langlois. If she's listening or out there, I mean, I, I don't think she ever knew the bearing she had on me and probably most teachers never realize the bearing they have on students, but she made science class and biology class so fun that I decided right then and there that I wanted to do something in the sciences. Well, at the time, she was married to a guy who was in internal medicine residency, had uh, went to medical school and was doing his residency at the hospital in San Antonio, the training hospital in internal medicine. And when I told her that I was thinking about becoming a physician, you know, like her husband, you know, she said, well, you know, why don't you meet with us on the weekend and go to the hospital with him and make rounds. And he took me to the hospital with him on a couple of weekends and showed me how to do a gram stain to check for bacteria and took me on rounds, seeing patients with him on a couple of weekends. And that's kind of what sold me. Uh, I thought, you know what, I want to do this. So kind of geared the rest of my high school years and, <clears throat> and college to go to medical school. I got a degree um, in biology and um, then started applying to medical school immediately after college and uh, went to medical school in Dallas and did my residency at Case Western uh, in Ohio and uh, Allegheny General in uh, Pittsburgh and then returned to Texas. My family's here. Uh, my mother by that time was having some illness from renal failure uh, and wanted to be you know, home you know, where I could you know, help take care of my parents. So opened my practice uh, in San Antonio, Texas in 1996. Uh, and then everything that I talked about with the targeting on my fiance and all of that uh, probably started around the year 99 or 2000 uh, and went on for a couple of years because we weren't real sure how to deal with it. And then continued being a doctor as well as kind of getting my feet wet into the film business. What's it like to be in surgery? I've seen uh, on TV, anesthesiologists and uh, not real cu uh, clear of what they do. It's uh, you you're in charge of keeping people under during surgery, correct? Well, and what best way to look at it is, I guess we're the the internal medicine doctor of the OR. I mean, and our job is not only to make sure that that you're under and you're insensible to the pain stimulus from the surgery but to make sure that you come out alive as well. And I, I think several anesthesiologists have summed it up best is that it's kind of like flying an airplane. Um, you know, takeoff and landing are the two most dangerous points. You know, once you're kind of on autopilot and ventilators going and you've got the right concoction of gases or IV medications going, autopilot's not so scary, but when you're first putting somebody to sleep and you're first waking somebody up, those are the two most dangerous points. 
and uh, I've heard it described that anesthesiologists, anesthesiology is basically hours of boredom punctuated by seconds of terror. Because uh, especially if you're doing kids, and I did a lot of pediatric anesthesia, kids will turn south on you very quickly. And uh, they don't carry their oxygen capacity for very long. If, uh, if something obstructs their airway or they stop breathing, you know, they start to turn blue and get slow heart rates and, and flatline pretty quickly. So you have to be on your toes watching those monitors and, and ready to reverse uh, any untoward effects that, uh, that may happen under anesthesia. Are you ever involved in emergency surgeries or is it just scheduled surgeries? No, I mean, uh, anesthesia in most cities, the way it works, you have to take call. So taking call means that, you know, there's usually a night a week or at least a night a month where, you know, if, if somebody comes into that ER and they need an emergency surgery and the surgeon calls you, then if you're not already there, you typically you're already, you've already been called in by somebody else for something and you're usually already there. But if you're not, then you, you go driving as fast as you can to the hospital to get that person to sleep. And, th and that's a whole another another entry into anesthesia because then you're dealing with somebody that's already coming in a lot of times bleeding or bled out. And not only are you trying to get them to sleep or they can handle the surgery, but you're trying to stabilize their hemodynamics you know, while you're doing it, which a lot of times means kind of balancing out the sedative effects of anesthesia and the blood pressure lowering effects of the anesthesia with their blood pressure already going low from from bleeding out if it's you know some type of a motor vehicle accident or crush injury or you know maybe a baby that's gone bad during birth or something like that and that's the other part of anesthesia is most of us do some form of obstetrics which means we're in the hospital for 24 hours doing epidurals doing c-sections things like that so what was your lowest point and your highest point as an anesthesiologist so far? Probably my highest point was actually uh, passing the oral boards. Uh, when you're doing anesthesia, the way you become board certified is you do, do your medical school, you do your residency, which is medical school is four years, residency is four years. At the end of that four years, you have to take a written exam at, uh, as part of the boards. Once you get past the written exam, then you have to sit for your oral boards. And to give you an idea um, for your listeners, when you take your oral boards, you basically have to study and study and study. Um, and just general knowledge of anesthesia and cases and what can go wrong with cases. And then typically they're not in your state. They, there's one place they are twice a year, and it may be Chicago, it may be New York, it may be LA. You fly there to take your oral boards, and then you basically go into five different rooms where you sit down with, you know, not just an anesthesiologist, but the anesthesiologist that wrote the textbooks that you've just been studying for, you know, eight years um, during residency and medical school and while you're studying for your boards. So these are the guys that that you learn from through your reading. So it's it's names you know. Um, so you go and you sit down in front of these people and they basically give you a case uh, to look at, usually give you five or 10 minutes to kind of go over it, go over how you would do it, uh, what precautions you would take, what anesthesia you would use. There's a bunch of different ways to put somebody to sleep. Uh, and then they grill you on, you know, what bad decisions or good decisions that you make. And it's a pretty high failure rate 
on the boards. A lot of people have to take the oral boards two or three times to get through them. Um, and I'll be honest, on one of my cases, my uh, the preceptor doing it was the man who wrote all of our textbooks on obstetric anesthesia. Uh, anesthesia for having having babies and he gave me a high-risk pregnancy case and I went through everything I knew to do everything I had trained to do and as he's telling me he goes well you know your patient just passed away and uh, and I, I almost broke into tears as I thought well you know if your patient dies in the board exam then you know you're you're probably not gonna you know, I'm probably gonna be here again next year uh, to take it and I think he could see the distraughtness on my face because he came up and he patted me on the back and he said, hey, just want to let you know something. This was a real case that happened to me 20 years ago. He goes in, you did all the same steps that I did and that patient died in real life for me. He goes, I always throw this out to somebody who I think knows what they're talking about and, and has their science down, you know, pretty pat, just to see if there's anybody else who would have done anything any different that may have, may have given this woman a different outcome. And then I felt a little better that, you know, he had given me basically a, a case that, that can't be won. So um, that was probably my, my highest point. My lowest point, I will tell you, is being an anesthesiologist, making a pretty decent living, thinking, thought, thinking I'm a friend to pretty much everybody. Um, you know, pretty good, pretty easygoing guy and pretty friendly guy with everybody. And knowing that the type of technology and the type of crime that was perpetrated on my fiance, that I couldn't really do anything to help her. And uh, I went to the police. I went to friends. I went to people in government uh, that I know that said, yeah, that's what she's being targeted. Matter of fact, one of my friends in the CIA said, well, is she in government trouble? Because what you're describing is satellite surveillance that we use to target terrorists and enemies of the state in other countries. And I said, no, she shows apartments for a living and, and I do medicine. That true feeling of helplessness when you're up against basically a crime committed by government technology that most people don't understand and you can't do anything about or anything to help that person. Now, you said that uh, you broke up with your fiance. Yeah. Yeah. Have you... Uh... Have you met anybody since then? Yeah, actually, uh, I got married uh, two years ago. Another interesting story, if you want life stories, I, I met a great, uh, great gal. We dated for a couple of years and then uh, decided to get married. Um, right about the time we were uh, talking about getting married, my father passed away, uh, dropped dead of a heart attack mowing, uh, was a man that uh, walked five miles a day, ate flaxseed on everything, was one of the healthiest individuals I know. Um, lab work was all good, went to his physician regularly, dropped dead outside mowing. Both grandfathers in their 70s dropped dead plowing. I come from an agricultural background. Both grandfathers were farmers. Um, so I uh, went to my dad's cardiologist and I said, look, every man in my family's dropping dead outside. And I said, I know I'm at the time I was 52. Um, and I said, uh, let's cath me, put squirts and dye up there. I don't know if I have any blockages. And he said, well, we can't just do that. We need to do some other tests. Let's do a stress test. Are you having any symptoms? And I wasn't. I was working out every day. Uh, I just got through clearing an acre of cedar in the hut with a chainsaw by myself. 
And, um, and he said, well, he goes, I think you're overreacting to your father's death and you know, it's probably nothing. And uh, I ran on the treadmill that was kind of inconclusive. And I said, look, you and I both know the only way to know if I've got any blockages is to put a cat catheter in and squirt some dye in my coronary arteries and find out. Because I did a calcium score also, which is a CT scan that looks for calcium, and that was relatively clear. So I finally convinced my dad's cardiologist, you know, he goes, well, you're not having any symptoms. And I said, the first symptom in males in my family is death. Um, and he goes, well, you're right. Okay, I'll cath you. Woke me up on the cath room table, 95% blocked left main artery, three others, 85% blocked. Oh my goodness. Running on a treadmill 30 minutes a day, working out with weights, clearing cedar. I live on five acres. I have a 900 acre ranch doing farm work, doing ranch work. I was lucky that I hadn't already dropped dead. Um, this was three weeks before my scheduled wedding. So he wakes me up on the table. He's, I got bad news. He goes, you're right. You know, you've got some blockage. I'm glad you twisted my arm into doing your calf. You're on the schedule in the morning for open heart surgery. You need a quadruple bypass at 52 so um scared you know i had you know my fiance there had my mother there and uh went ahead and i met the cardiac surgeon we went in the next morning he didn't have to put me on pump he worked on my heart while it was beating uh, at the methodist hospital in san antonio and uh got out of the hospital five days later seven days after that um against my doctor's advice rode in a car down to south padre uh, got married on the beach in south padre was able to stand long enough for that preacher to say our vows because we already had people with reserved rooms and and then i spent the rest of my wedding weekend um, on a wedge pillow propped up trying not to cough and hurt my chest or sneeze or anything watching tv while everybody else had a good time so but yeah got uh, got married exactly 20 days after having my chest cut open to have open heart surgery that's an intense surgery my mother had a triple bypass and she complained for months afterwards the cartilage in her breastplate moving back and forth uh, from where they had to crack her open yeah you're in and I'll, I'll agree with her that that hurts and especially those that first month you now if you've got a sneeze or cough or you know, you're praying to God that you don't get constipated. Um, and I'll be honest with you. I mean, it's everybody said, well, you were so blocked up. Now that that's all cleared up, you probably feel much better. Well, I didn't feel any symptoms. You know, I was doing everything I wanted to do. I was running on the treadmill. I was working out. I wasn't getting tired. I wasn't getting chest pain. I wasn't getting arm pain. Um, but, you know, I knew from family history that you know, there was a pretty good chance I was going to have some blockages. Now, was I expecting open heart surgery? No, I was expecting maybe you got 30% or 40% blockage. Let's keep an eye on it. You may need a stent in a couple of years. That's kind of what I was expecting. Wasn't expecting to go in. I mean, even my office, I called my office manager and, and said, well, I'm not going to be in for a few weeks because they're about to cut my chest open. And her exact words, she's like, stop kidding around with us. She was, was everything okay? And I said, no, I'm having my chest cut open, you know, tomorrow morning. Um, but honestly, I didn't feel right after open heart surgery, probably for the first eight months afterwards. I mean, it does take the energy out of you. I mean, it's, I mean, I was back in the office working probably in 30 days after having it done, but 
I was at a lot slower pace. I mean, I, I people were like, well, you, now that your vessels are working and you're all cleared up, you probably have all this energy. And I, I can't honestly say that that was the case, at least not for me. I was tired. Uh, and it was, it was a struggle just to kind of keep, get back going and get, I'm really just now kind of feeling normal again. And I'm, I'm two years out. So do you and your wife have children? No, no, we're, we're working on that right now. She's quite a bit younger than me. And, uh, she just turned, um, 36 and has no kids and wants some. And, uh, we're, we're working on that now. So at least now that I know I'm maybe going to be alive a little bit longer to enjoy them. So, you know, as a physician, we, one of the things we all hope to do is, I mean, you're, you're, you don't get into, you don't go into medicine for the money. A lot, a lot of people may think they're going to go to medical school because you make a good living. For one, if you boil it down to hours spent, you know, it's probably about $14 an hour. I mean, because I, I typically work a 70 to 80 hour work week, some weeks, you really have to go into medicine because you want to do it for the right reason. And that's basically for, for one, you love medicine and for two, you want to help people. And one of the things that I got into as part of my pain management clinic was doing stem cells. Um, Not the ones getting from embryos or from Planned Parenthood, but getting the person's own stem cells. You can draw marrow, you can spin it down, you can get what we call mesenchymal stem cells. The cool thing with stem cells is they can become any cell in the body. And we use those to treat knee arthritis and shoulder arthritis. And people, the orthopedic surgeon has told them, well, your only chance now is to get a knee replacement or a hip replacement or a shoulder replacement. Well, if we catch you in time, we can draw your marrow, we can spin it down, we can get the stem cells, put it in those joints and regenerate the cartilage. And at, at worst, at least put off a knee replacement for another five or 10 years. And at best, maybe put it off entirely if, if you change your lifestyle and maybe you're not as hard on your joints. The other thing that I, I will see is I will have surgeons call me and say, hey, I've got a person we did a, a fracture surgery on. We put plates in, the leg's not healing, it's getting infected. We may have to amputate the leg. And I had a lady come in uh, about two years ago now that came to me with just that such a case. Um, she had fractured both bones in her lower leg below the knee. The orthopedic surgeon had put pins in them, but the space between the, the fractures never would fill in with bone. And when that happens, you end up getting cartilaginous scar tissue there and fibrous tissue, and it becomes a nidus for infection. And they had finally gotten her infection treated, but once that infection sits in, then the bone won't grow calcium to heal. So they had brought her in and they had told her, well, you really only have one choice. We've tried to revise this. We put new plates, we put new pins. You're not healing. We're gonna have to take your leg from above the knee down. Um, This was a woman who's about 60, a health nut, you know, very, very active. So she had, had heard about me at my clinic doing stem cell research. So she came to me and told me her story. And I said, well, as long as there's no infection there, let's draw your marrow, let's spin it down, let's see what kind of stem cells we get. We'll go in under ultrasound and direct those stem cells directly into the fracture site on your tibia and your fibia. Uh, we did that. We got her marrow. She had an excellent assortment of, of stem cells. and We got quite a few from her. Uh, went in under ultrasound with a very fine needle, went into those little crevices um, where the bones were trying to meet but couldn't quite heal. 
and we put stem cells there and they grew unbelievably well. Her bone healed. Uh, she went back to her orthopedic surgeon who was all, all but ready to cut her leg off. He even tried to convince her not to come see me uh, to have stem cells done. He goes, well, you know, there's, this is new technology. There's no proof that it's gonna work. You know, you're, you're gonna get an infection and we just need to cut your leg off. Well, luckily she was able to march back in his office walking normally on two legs and say, look, you know, I had the stem cells done, my leg is healed uh, and I don't need an amputation. And uh, since then that surgeon has sent me several other cases like that uh, that um, in the past would have been amputation cases. When do you, uh, do you have certain times that you're at your clinic and then certain times that you're doing anesthesiology? Uh, I pretty much am doing pain management um, straight now, um, five to seven days a week. Uh, anesthesia, I was doing one day a week until about five months ago. Uh, and now I'm doing mostly pain management, which is low back pain, shoulder pain, joint pain, and stem cells and uh, platelet-rich plasma, uh, which is another, another novel approach to treat arthritis using platelets. Do you see people all over the country? Do they come to you? Yeah, I do. I, I have people that come to me pretty much globally for stem cells. I was the first person to start doing that type of uh, treatment in San Antonio. And for your listeners, if you're looking into doing stem cells, make sure you look into that pretty closely. If they're advertising this freeze-dried mix or they're using embryologic stem cells that come from embryos, those don't know when to stop growing because they're not your own. Um, make sure you look into it because now there is a lot more people doing it and it's not being done with the same guidelines that most of us that started the research meant. Um, so, I mean, really look to see what practitioner you're going to if you're thinking about doing stem cells for arthritis.